From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. Joining me today on Check This Out is Emma Torge, the author of the new novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. Emma Torge teaches at McAllister College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and is a writer and occasional translator. I knew I had to invite her to join me on the show when I read her book and loved it. And then she told me she did part of her research for this project and others by attending the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop in Wyoming. This workshop is a crash course for writers in modern astronomical science that offers lectures, discussions, and actual observation time through the University of Wyoming's professional telescopes, meaning she learned how to write about magical sci-fi subjects from NASA. In my mind, it just doesn't get cooler than that. Inkblood's sister scribe is about two estranged half-sisters tasked with guarding their family's library of magical books. They work together along with a stranger, a magical scribe, to unravel a deadly secret at the heart of their collection, a tale of familial loyalty and betrayal and the pursuit of magic and power. Torz says swaths of the story were inspired by her family's Hungarian roots, by what it took for them to survive the Holocaust, and I saw that influence on every page. The pages flew, and I'm honored to have Emma on our show today. Welcome, Emma. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So I actually met uh, Emma on an island in Maine at a an artist residency over the summer. And the first thing she told me about this book was that she had been working with her agent to sell a novel for over 10 years. This book has been over 10 years in the making. Emma, talk to us about the story and how you got here today. Um, well, you know, the book itself, it only took me about two years to write. But when you say it was 10 years in the making, I think a lot of first novels are actually however many years old the person is in the making. So I would say this book was maybe like 34 years in the making. I finished it at age 34. But yes, I first started talking to my agent when she reached out about a short story that I had written in 2012. And she said, you know, I'm interested in signing with you, but only when you have a novel. You know, I don't sign for short stories. And then she would check in with me every so often over the years, you know, hey, how's it going? Do you have a novel? Um, And I did have a novel eventually uh, that I queried her with. And she, you know, signed me and uh, tried to sell that novel novel and it did not work. Nobody would buy it. That book took a very long time to write. That book took like seven years to write. And in retrospect, I'm so glad it did not get published. (laughs) It's like extremely boring. (laughs) I mean, you know, I love my agent and I do trust her intuition and she is still a fan of the book, which I appreciate. Um, But there's definitely something to be said for not publishing the very first book that you ever finish. So I actually feel really grateful that that didn't work out and allowed me to go in a totally new direction. That book was literary fiction, like literary realism. 
Um, and after it didn't sell, I had a sort of uh, like reawakening to what made me happy as a writer. You know, it's quite depressing to not sell a book that took seven years to write. Um, so I had to kind of sit with myself and think, okay, like what would be worth trying to write again that would keep me happy and engaged as a writer? And the answer was fantasy fiction. So I sort of went back to my junior high school roots with this. I love that. So tell us, what is the book about? Give us your elevator pitch. The book is about two half-sisters who were raised by their father to protect their family's library of magical books. Um, and when the book opens, we ha they haven't seen one another for about 10 years. One is in Antarctica, one is in Vermont. Um, and due to certain events, including the death of their father at the hands of one of his own magical volumes, they must slowly begin to work together after being estranged for 10 years. And then there's also a third point of view, um, a young, a wealthy young man in London who's sort of beginning to wonder about his life of power and whether it's maybe more of a cage. So I couldn't put this book down because of the magic, because it is literally about the magic of books, right? Books that you can read from, that turn into spells, that make magic happen. And as a kid, books for me were magic, right? And I feel like I was waiting for books to become magical, right? Like it didn't, it would, doesn't surprise me that, you know, a book would have a spell and, and be able to weave magic. And I felt like um, you just reached into my own childhood, <laughs> right? And put that on the page. Was that also a part of your childhood? Childhood? Oh, big time. I was such an avid reader as a kid, as I think many uh, grown-ups who are now writers were. Um, but I especially was very entranced by used bookstores. I remember, you know, I read so many kids' books and young adult books that had the protagonist finding this magical tome that would let them enter into a different world and totally change their life. And so I would go to used bookstores, you know, at like 10 years old or something, and literally wander the shelves, touching every spine, waiting for like a jolt of recognition or electricity. I was totally sure that I would find that book eventually. Um, and I think as a writer, we're kind of always looking for that spark in a metaphorical way, like, okay, what's the book that's gonna open up my doors and change my life? And, you know, I think every book you write changes your life in a little way, whether or not it's published. Um, but I really wanted to channel a lot of what made me a joyful childhood reader into a book for adults. And your two main characters, Joanna and Esther, are raised to be guardians of one another and of this magical library. And there's just a lot of pressure on them, right, to watch these over these magical books, to watch over the family's magical legacy. And there was so much pressure on them from these books. How did you think about that? I mean, I think to me, despite like magic or fantastical elements, this is a family story. And as you said, um, very eloquently. It's a story about the expectations of family. And I have a lovely family who, you know, certainly did not charge me with any grandiose tasks as a child. Um, but I still, you know, my sister is one of my favorite people in this world. Um, and I feel very responsible for her in some way. She would hate for me to say that she's a fully grown woman. But you know, the like the the weight of love, I think, can be really intense and it feels sometimes like a responsibility. When you love someone or something so much, you want to protect it. You want the very best for it. And I think that that can go a number of ways, um, not all of them necessarily good. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I think you're right. We all grow up with some expectations from our family, whether it's, you know, that you're supposed to be a doctor or take over a family business or watch over your sister or brother, right? There are expectations that are built into every family. Keep your family safe, right? It might be as basic as that. And you really wove that into this book. Um, Did that just come out sort of naturally or was that, you know, the result of many, you know, sort of many drafts that you worked through? Um, I think the sister dynamic is actually the only thing that really remained constant through every draft, whether or not that's because I have uh, sisters myself. Um, I have one blood sister and then three stepsisters. So I am no stranger to sisters, as I know you are no stranger to sisters. So I think that that was always the heart of the book for me is sort of following this dynamic between the two of them. Um, They both are looking out for each other in their own ways and, you know, tracking how they got through the messiness of that dynamic to relearn how to love one another as adults, I think, is part of what this book is about for me. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could uh, take us into the world of this book to Joanna and Esther and if you could read a little excerpt for us. Um, Sure. I will read. This is uh, from, so the the book alternates between three, not points of view because it's all in third person, but it alternates between three perspectives. We have Joanna in Vermont, Esther in Antarctica, um, where she's an electrician on a research base, and then Nicholas, who comes in a little bit later, but is a very important part of the book, um, who's in outside London. Um, So this is from Esther in Antarctica. So we're about to hear you launch us on the adventure. So go ahead. Exactly. This is like the da-da-da moment of chapter one. (laughs) Um, Okay. Leave every year on November 2nd, Esther's father had said, or the people who killed your mother will come for you too. And not only you, Esther, they'll come for your sister. For these past 10 years, she had listened, she had obeyed. Every November 1st, she had packed up her things and every November 2nd, she had started moving, sometimes driving for that long day and night, sometimes taking a series of buses, planes, trains, not sleeping. From Vancouver to Mexico City, from Paris to Berlin, from Minneapolis to Antarctica. Every year, like clockwork, except this year. This year, she had ignored his warning. This year, she had stayed. And now it was November 5th. The station was filled with strangers, and one of them had brought a book. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) And we are launched onto the adventure. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Emma Turge, and you are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Emma's new novel, Ink Blood Sister Scribe. Okay, Emma, so we are launched on this adventure. These two sisters, they're supposed to be guarding the magic. They're supposed to be guarding one another. Um, And yet they start having this feeling that maybe something isn't quite right. Maybe they don't know everything that's happening. Um, And we really get into another theme in this book, which is not just the weight of expectations, but what happens when you grow up believing one thing about your family, and then you learn that a lot of it was just a lie. What do you do with that? Yeah, um, I think secrets are maybe the biggest recurring theme in this book, uh, which is not something that I noticed until I started doing interviews and people started asking me about all the secrets. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got lots of secrets in this book. Um, And I do think 
you know, the urge for me is always to like make metaphor out of these things that I did accidentally. Um, because of course I meant to put in secrets because I wanted the reader to be excited and pulled along, but I wasn't thinking about what a theme is. You know, that's something that like you think about after when you're analyzing a book, um, or at least for some of us, some writers I know sit down and they're like, I know what themes I want to hit. Um, for me, it's more like vague, like, oh, sisters, books, you know, um, so I realized later that there were many, many secrets. Um, and I think that part of this book is in many ways, like I said, like an updated version of the young adult novels that I loved as a child. And it's very hard to write an adult fantasy about it is a coming of age book still like these are older young adults they're you know in their late 20s um, but for some of us it takes longer to come of age like you don't just come of age at 16 and then boom you're of age uh, every choice you've made is what will propel you into your future um, and I think that secrets are a big part of coming of age and sort of uncovering all the truths that you were told as a child and realizing that none of those things are necessarily true and that you can choose your own truths um, and that, you know, you take some things your parents teach you and you take it with you forever and some things you set aside and think, okay, well, that shan't serve me anymore um, and I will be an adult without adhering specifically to this thing that my parents told me every single day of my whole life. So, Emma, your family came to America from Hungary, and um, your characters in the book are also from Hungary, and we see some of those roots in there. How did that really influence the characters, and how did you weave that into the book, that history, that family history of your own family? People often ask me and other writers, you know, what parts of this are true, what really come from your real life. Uh, actually, in this book, that is the only thing that I really just stole wholesale from my own family history, uh, is that my paternal family were actors in Budapest, just like the paternal family of uh, the sisters in this book. And, you know, I think it was important to me. The characters are Jewish. My family is Hungarian Jewish. There is a really fascinating legacy of silence that I have encountered um, from my own family around, you know, the trauma of World War II and coming over to America as, you know, people running away essentially from the Nazis. Um, and some of my family survived. And that's how I live on this earth today, which is quite humbling. I mean, every family is a story of improbable survival, really, no matter where you are from. Um, for some of us, it's much closer than for others. And my family's survival feels really close, but it was not really talked about. Um, and, you know, my paternal family, I, I am excluding my father from this. Uh, for the most part, he is a lovely and well-adjusted person. Um, but his parents, you know, had some <laughs> trauma that was enacted upon my father um, and that he really felt as a child and then didn't talk about to me, but I could feel the echoes of that and didn't know how to talk about it. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, like that secret keeping that happens all throughout the book is this kind of weird, like generational Jewish silence in some ways. So it did feel important to me that these characters 
related to that part of my own story and my own understanding of family and what it means to not talk about things in a family. And that's how we get to so many secrets and lies and expectations, really, right? The weight of the history of your family is in your characters. It's in every page of this book. So to be clear, this is not a YA. This is not a book for kids. This is grown-up adult fiction. This is about two grown-up women who are coming of age and really learning about their past and what they want their future to be. So this is, you know, adult fiction, <laughs> as it were, just to be clear. Yes. And I think it's like, um, you know, a lot of people assume that it is YA because it's a fantasy book and be maybe because it has a purple cover. <laughs> but I have a lot of people being like, oh, I bought it for my 12-year-old. Actually, I think a 12-year-old could really enjoy the book. Um, but I also hope that, you know, like a 78-year-old could enjoy this book. Absolutely. So I want to go back to what you said before was that you didn't really think about the theme of secrets, that you were telling a story. And I think that's why it just read so quickly and so beautifully. It was like an adventure. And I also was not hung up on the theme of secrets or figuring out, you know, how to deal with the weight of expectations because I was just caught up in the story. That's great. That's exactly what I was hoping. I was also caught up in the story. This book was really fun to write. And every time it wasn't fun, I tried to make it fun again. Um, and hopefully that translates on the page. It was really me amusing myself for 400 pages. <laughs> it definitely did. Well, while we're talking about the different ways that people have classified this book, uh, congratulations. Good Morning America chose this book as their selection for Pride Month. Um, so the book starts out with a bang. There's an amazing uh, love scene between one of the sisters, Esther, and another woman, Pearl. And they just happen to be two people that are in love in the book, and they're love scene and love story is as much a part as uh, Joanna's love for her sister, right? The sisterly love. And then Joanna falls in love later in the book. Um, and so there's just lots of love in this book. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that I would have called this a queer novel. And yet that's one of the ways it's being classified. What do you think about that? I am fascinated by like market classifications and genre in general. Um, it's another thing that I think I did. I didn't think about while I was writing the book. You know, I wasn't um, thinking about how I would put this book on shelves for better or for worse. You know, some writers are really good at thinking about that. It didn't occur to me. I was just writing the book that I was writing. Um, I thought of it sort of generally as a capital F fantasy novel. And that's really as far as I got in terms of thinking about its classification. And then when you sell a book and your publisher begins to market it, that's when all these like subcategories get sort of put on your book and people decide how to market it. Um, so I am very happy with people thinking of it as a queer book if it helps queer readers find the book. Um, so I'm, you know, that I was like very proud that it was a Pride Month pick. I was really stoked about that. Uh, I didn't think of it as a queer book while I was writing it, mostly because, you know, I live in a world where many, if not most of my friends are queer. Most of them are queer women. Um, it didn't, it would be weirder to me to write a book without queerness in it. I think if I just wrote a totally straight book, that would feel much more forced and like a weird lie, um, than having, you know, a love scene between two women on page six or whatever, which I do understand might be weird to some readers, um, or out of the norm. But for me, that's very much my norm. Um, so I'm very happy for people to think of it as a queer book if it helps them find that book. Uh, but I also don't think it is, you know, I think I think queerness is really interesting because you can sort of 
apply a queer lens to a lot of things. Um, I have had some queer readers say that this book like really meant a lot to them and that what you were talking about, that weight of expectation and family, they interpreted as sort of like a queer story, like that weight of expectation can be especially painful for queer people. It's a totally different set of expectations. Um, I was not thinking about that at all. Maybe that was part of what was going on in my subconscious, um, but I was not, that wasn't like the metaphor that I was focusing on as I was writing. So I think it's just kind of fun to see your book read by other people and labeled by other people. It's a very trippy experience, honestly, because. Um, yeah, not all of us are thinking every step of the way about, you know, how it will be shelved or labeled or perceived um, that comes later. Right. You were just writing an adventure. Totally. And you were talking about family expectations, sister love. Yeah. And for me, the way I read it was just, you know, one sister fell in love with a woman and one fell in love with a man. And, you know, that's it. That's not the heart of the story at all. That's just the way life goes. No, and like actually the interviewer on Good Morning America pointed something out that made me happy that she noticed um, where she was like, well, these two women are already together. It's not a love story or a coming out story, uh, I think, which is often maybe what you think of when you think of queer literature. You think of a love story or the coming out um, and they're just together. They start the book together. I won't tell you how they end. You'll have to read the book to see if they stay together. All right, and you're going to have to stick with us so we can hear some more from Emma Turge. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Emma Turge. We're talking about her new novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're just joining us. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Emma Turge, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking to Emma about her new book, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. Emma, thanks for sticking with us. We were just talking about your book being classified as a queer book when, in fact, I had just read it as this super magical adventure, and we open when two women are in love, and then this one woman is pulled away from that love so that she can go and save her sister and save her family. And really what this book about is the weight of expectations, right, and sisterly love. So there's some really big themes there. But we're also talking about this interesting aspect of selling a book, which is how do you classify a book? How do you reach readers? Yeah, I'm curious, Rachel, if you don't mind talking about your experience with that, um, since you yourself have written several books and um, Atomic Anna is sort of like a genre straddler in some ways. And I'm curious how that was marketed and what your experience was like while you were writing it. Were you thinking about these classifications? Yeah, you know, I love that we're talking about this because um, I always feel like, like you, that when I write a book, I'm just writing the story. I'm writing the adventure. And it is, you know, capital F fiction or capital L literature. That's it, right? But then when Atomic Anna went into production and marketing and PR, right, everyone started calling it science fiction 
or women's fiction or historical fiction. Right? You get all these subgenres. And I feel like sometimes that just takes away from the heart of the story because I don't read because I want to read, you know, a queer book or, a, a, you know, a book about history necessarily. I want to read an adventure. I want to read something that's going to take me away, something that's magical, like your book, right? That's going to just suck me in for 400 pages, you know? And so, I, I, you know, I love that as a way of looking at literature more than any of these, you know, sort of uh, labels that we put on it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I am like a, a genre reader in that I seek out categories of books to read. I read super, super widely, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm in the mood for a fantasy. Um, sometimes I think, okay, I'm in the mood for some like neo-noir techno thriller. What is that? That is, well, <laughs> this is a chance for me to plug one of my best friends has a novella coming out uh, in the spring called uh, These Fragile Graces, This Fugitive Heart by Izzy Wasserstein. And I noticed that her marketers are using the term neo-noir techno thriller. Uh, which just means it's like a mystery set in a sort of like science fictional kind of cyberpunky universe. Um, but I loved that. I just love repeating the words neo-noir techno thriller to myself. That is a new one. That is a new one. Yeah. But like, I think that also sometimes I'm like, you know, I just really want to read a book that has a brotherly relationship and some like daddy issues. And like how you can't really look for that genre. You know, sometimes I'm like, give me some like masculine angst. I don't know. Or like, you know, I want to read something about, I don't know, mothers hating their children. Who knows? You know, there's like all kinds of emotional genres that we can't really look for. I love that. All right. Let's get back to Inkblood Sister Scribe. Um, so another one of the things that I uh, absolutely loved about this book was the idea that it is set in a library. And these two sisters, Joanna and Esther, um, and Nicholas, the scribe, are really their lives are centered around protecting books. But these libraries are sort of a source of power for everybody, right? Like not anyone can just come and look at them. In fact, Esther and Joanna guard the books and don't let them out of their house. They don't let anybody else see them. Um, so how did you think about that sort of idea of power in the book and, a, you know, a power struggle for books? I was thinking about books in this particular novel as a resource like any other um, and I guess this is one theme that I did have in mind while I was writing it or, you know, something I was thinking about was intergenerational wealth and how wealth gets passed down through families um, and how that sort of perpetuates oppression and hegemonic structures in the world. Um, and so that is like the lofty explanation. <laughs> and then sort of the more minute explanation is that I was thinking about the weight of family expectations and I wanted to give it solid form in some ways. And, you know, generational wealth includes weird expectations, I think. Um, I'm not actually familiar with it on a personal level, um, but, I, you know, I have read about uh, rich kids. I've met a few. Um, and it comes with a lot of expectations, just like any family does. Um, but I wasn't thinking about that so much as I was thinking about kind of critiquing this idea that resources should be passed down only through family and kept hidden um, in some way. Yeah. 
But you even took that a step further, because if somebody controls a library, it's not just a resource like oil, right? right? It's knowledge. And so what they're controlling is what the rest of the world can ever know, right? So if you don't let a book out, someone will never learn that spell or they'll never learn that magic even exists. And so there was also this sort of higher question of, how much do we tell the masses, right, or the people? Yeah, and you know, the, there's an argument in the book made by some people that these spells and books are dangerous, which is true. It's not a lie. Some of them are dangerous um, and should not be allowed in the hands of the civilians, so to speak. Um, and I would say that knowledge is always more dangerous when it's suppressed than when it is shared. That's sort of my general belief. Um, and I would say the same for books. I think that it's, I feel more danger when I see books being banned than I do when I happen to read a book that I personally find distasteful or threatening in some way. And there are plenty, but I think, yeah, for me, it's the, the suppression is more dangerous than the sharing. I love that you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say it felt like this modern movement to ban books. Right. And literally take them off the shelves. They are no longer allowed to circulate. That is a big theme in this book. Yes. It's something I find very stressful to think about. Um, and it really breaks my heart to think about all the kids who are not finding their, you know, soul book the way that I did when I was a kid. Um, and that really was, you know, having a vast library and a friendly librarian and parents who would let me read whatever I wanted was so meaningful to me and has shaped my life. Obviously, you know, I grew up to be a writer. Um, so I can't say enough for letting kids read some wacky stuff. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Emma Turge, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Emma's new novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. And right now we are talking about this theme of banned books or keeping books away from people, which is a big theme in this book, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. So another big theme or, or sort of one of the um, things that happens in this book is we find out that one or two, perhaps, of the characters, I don't want to give too much away, are scribes, which means they can actually write magic, but it requires blood. And so it's literally killing the characters to write this magic, right, and to put it out there. Um, and so why? Why are you making this, you know, these scribes, this written magic kill people? What's the symbolism there? Yeah. Why are you hurting your characters? Well, OK, so the symbolism that I only realized long after writing the book, again, like I always just want to make a metaphor out of everything, but is, you know, writing itself. <laughs> um, writing is extremely difficult and draining and I am still one of those people that has to do it. It feels, you know, like that's, you know, that's just what I was born to do. That's my life's path. It's too late to give up now. I'm not skilled at anything else. Um, I, you know, uh, so there is that metaphor that's like writing is exhausting, but you have to do it anyway. But in a more specific sense, when I was thinking about the magic system, I wanted a system that um, anyone could access to a certain point. You know, so in my magic system, anybody, regardless of family or bloodline or anything like that, can pick up one of these magical books and enact the spell by reading the book out loud. So you don't have to be special at all to pick up one of these books and read it. Um, 
And then I also wanted to play around with the idea of a chosen one. And who in this book is the chosen one? There are other types of interaction with these books. You know, some people can hear the books. They hear the magic and can kind of follow the trail. They can tell when a magic book is around. And then other people can write the books, but they cannot enact the magic of the books as you learn. Um, so there's sort of a give and take who is the chosen one here and which is the better power, so to speak? Is it to be an every person that can just pick up the book and enact magic wherever and however, which is honestly how I think of reading in some ways. It's a magic system that once you learn how to read is accessible to you forever. And then some of us write those books, you know, uh, through toil and trouble. And then other people are, you know, you could spin the metaphor further, like critics or reviewers or, you know, and they're the ones that can hear a different frequency. Um, so I was just kind of interested in playing around with a magic system that was inclusive, but also specific. And writing is exhausting. When I write 10 pages in a day, I feel like I've run a marathon. I know, it's wild. I did once read somewhere that intensive brain activity can like make you tired. Make you tired is an understatement, I think. It can fatigue you. Like your body literally gets fatigued if you just think for 10 hours. Yeah. I don't recommend to anyone and yet keep doing. So this theme of the chosen one, I love this theme. It's a classic trope, especially for fantasy. And the way you're talking about it, though, is not that there's one chosen one. It's that each of your characters needed to find their place in the world. And again, it really brings us back to this idea of the weight of expectations versus finding your own true self. So can you tell me more about how you thought about this, right? The chosen one versus just, you know, being who you want to be. Um, I am anti-chosen one <laughs> for many, many reasons. What? I would not have guessed that. So I love the chosen one trope. I am like a total sucker for it. Um, you know, I grew up reading chosen one books like can't even think of it. Harry Potter is an obvious one. Um, anything where it's like the one character has the weight of the world on their shoulder. My One of my absolute favorite novels is The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman, um, which I think at any age is genuinely just a perfect novel. I love the whole series, but that first book just I think is stunning. Um, and it is about a chosen one who does not know that she is chosen. And the way that that interacts with the story is really interesting. And similarly, you have Esther, who doesn't realize her powers either, right, until pretty far into the book. Yeah, totally. I don't know why I keep going back to this, like, metaphor of being a writer, but I feel so lucky to have known from a young age, like, what my personal power was. It was very clear that I was unskilled <laughs> in other realms, um, but I was always, like, a really strong reader. I think I've always been a strong writer, and adults told me all my life, you are good at this. You are really good at this. This is what you should do, which is really nice in some ways, but in other ways, I wonder what else I could have done if anyone had told me I was good at literally anything else. Um, you know, like uh, there's lots of things that really interest me as an adult that didn't interest me as a kid because I was terrible at them. Like I'm much more interested in science now, having failed much of high school science uh, in part because I was like, well, who needs science when I'm like a language person? You know, I was like taking three languages and writing a novel in my spare time. Um, so I think that's like a roundabout way of saying that a lot of the ways that we are told that we're special 
are both true, maybe, but also kind of predetermined. And there are so many ways to distinguish oneself within one's community and within one's family and around one's friends. And like, there's so many reasons for a person to be special and lovable and important and needed that have really nothing to do with like any kind of fake innate talent. Um, I don't know. I just think about that a lot. Like, what would it be like if I wasn't a writer? How would I distinguish myself in this world? I have no idea. You know, I have a lot of friends who like don't have a particular passion the way that I do, but I love them and need them. And they bring so much else into the world. Um, yeah. So there are just many different ways I think of like distinguishing oneself and finding a place. So the chosen one isn't necessarily the one chosen one in the book. It's more like finding your place in the world. Yeah, like finding how you, I think all of us in some ways are chosen. Uh, yes, and I think that for some, it's more of a struggle to figure out in what way. I want to believe that, you know, I do think everyone is special. I don't like everyone, <laughs> but I think everyone like has their own you know, special power that they can bring to the world. Some people use it for evil. But. So another big universal theme, fat, juicy theme that you weave into these pages um, is this, uh, this idea of loneliness, even in the middle of family, and also loneliness when you lose a parent. There are, right, all of the main characters pretty much have lost a parent or someone very close to them. Um, and even though they have people that they know love them, they feel so lonely, can you talk about that for us? Yes. This, again, is something in retrospect I realized. I wrote this book during quarantine, during lockdown, um, when I was at home all day, which is not an experience I have ever had before. I am a super busy, like very social person. It's usually I have to force myself to stay at home. Um, and for almost two years, I taught online for a year and a half. So I wasn't seeing students. I wasn't seeing colleagues. I was living with five other people. So I, you know, I wasn't as lonely as some. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful to my beloved housemates for sustaining me during that time. But this is totally a pandemic novel. Everyone is isolated. I mean, Joanna is locked away in a house in Vermont, literally can't be out past dark for magical reasons. Esther is on a research base in Antarctica, about as far as removed as you can get. Nicholas is literally locked in a house in England. I mean, they're all just locked in their houses, um, which is what I was experiencing at the time. I was locked in my house. I really wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and I think I was experiencing isolation maybe for the first time in my adult life, despite the fact that I had more people around me um, than most people do in such situations. And, you know, I was Zooming all the time with my friends, talking to my family. Um, but it was a profoundly unsettling experience. And I fear boredom and loneliness probably more than any things in this world, you know, aside from the obvious ones like mass catastrophe and, you know, real problems. <laughs> but the petty, the small petty emotional problems that I fear are boredom and loneliness. Um, and so I think I wanted to write my characters out of that isolation that I was experiencing at the time. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. 
We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Emma Turge. We're talking about her brand new novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, and you are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. My guest today is Emma Turge, and we are talking about her brand new debut novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. So, Emma, we're going to shift uh, the interview a little bit and talk about you as a writer out in the world. We have a lot of listeners who uh, want to be writers, who are writers, or who just love writers. <laughs> so, um, I first, I want to just ask you about social media. I've been dying to ask you this because, of course, when I Google stalk you, I find your website and it says no social media. So why? Why no social media? It is not for me. It is not. I love people. I'm a total people person. Um, I mean, you've met me. I'm super chatty. I love being around people, but I think of myself as an in-person person. Um, I don't. The thought of crafting my personality on the internet causes me such existential stress that it never seemed uh, worth the benefits. Um, it's really hard to be a writer with no social media. Like, I'll be honest, it's definitely um, a knock on my career probably in some ways. Like, I have friends who have gotten amazing opportunities through social media and have met incredible people, and I'm not anti-social media in general. But for me, it is not, it does not feel authentic. Um, it's not in line with my values. As much as I can, I try to live according to my values. Um, in some ways, it's really hard. Like I buy from Amazon all the time, <laughs> but I can't, I just can't do social media. I'm sure your agent and PR people are like, come on, Emma, get on Instagram. They have actually been so understanding. Um, and when I first, because I brought it up in the initial meetings with them, you know, when they were thinking about buying my book, I was like, just so you know, I will never get social media. There's nothing you can do to make me do it. It's a hard line for me. It's a boundary. And they were like, well, you haven't had it yet. So if you just got it right now, you'd probably be terrible at it. So, you know, like that's our job. We're here to market your book. We have social media. So they have been super understanding, and I feel incredibly grateful for that aspect of the publication process. I do, sometimes I feel left out. <laughs> you know, everybody's on the socials doing the cool stuff. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's, I would rather have no one read my book than get social media, I think is the, although who knows, check in on me in like five years and... <laughs> I reserve the right to change my mind at any moment. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, the other thing is that you are very good at finding writer communities outside of social, right? For most people, it's sort of the lazy way of finding a community. But you are very good at finding other friends and other circles. So can you talk about that? How have you built your writer community without social media? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look lazy to me. I, you can tell me, but it looks very hard to be on social media trying to make friends. For me, it's much more natural to make friends in person. And I am lucky in that I have a pretty flexible work schedule because I am on the academic schedule, which means I get 
you know, a month in winter off and then three months, four months in summer off, which is honestly wild if you think about it. That's a lot of time off, which is one of the reasons that I will stay in academia for as long as they let me. But it gives you a lot of time to travel, especially if you have no children, which I do not. Um, and, you know, my cat needs me, but for the most part, I don't have that many responsibilities here at home and my housemates take care of my cat. So I have traveled a lot. I've done a ton of residencies, you know, including the one that I met you at. And I made a bunch of lovely friends at that residency. I mean, here we are talking today. So I've done, I think, like 10 or 12 residencies and have kept a couple friends from each one. And I have lived in Minneapolis for almost 20 years and I've lived in the same house for 11 years, going on 12 years. You know, my college best friend lives three blocks away. I've just been really lucky in maintaining a long-term community and friends. Um, and then a big thing is that I did this six-week sci-fi fantasy workshop in Seattle called Clarion West, which is 18 writers for six weeks in a house. It's like the real world nerd edition. <laughs> um, and it was just really intense. It's like three hours a day of workshopping. So you're reading a ton, you're writing a story a week. Um, and we all got incredibly close. And there are a few of them that I talk to, not just every day, but like many, many times a day. And they have become really indispensable to my writing process. I love that. So the residency circuit, you're very good at it. Um, it's an amazing resource for writers. Um, the more competitive ones will basically invite you to come and stay. And all you have to pay for is your transportation to wherever the place is. Often you don't have to pay for the transportation. There are others that require you to pay to stay there. Right. But there are lots of options for people who are looking for communities in real life where they can meet writers and write together. It is so fun, too. Let me just put in a plug for the delight of being around a bunch of writers and artists is, yeah, it's really fun. It is. It's a different kind of person, right, who will pick up their life and just go, you know, live on an island for two weeks or, you know, live in a lodge or, you know, do sci-fi together for six weeks, right? It's an amazing way to build your community. And then you find readers and you find people to hold you up because it can be lonely when you're a writer sometimes. You find people to interview on New Hampshire Public Radio. <laughs> So, Emma, you are an assistant professor at McAllister College, um, and I know you love teaching. I know you love your students very much because you talk about them very affectionately. So I just want to know, though, is it hard to teach writing? Yes and no. I think it's easy to teach writing because I love talking about writing. I love talking about books. Um, you know, students that take creative writing classes especially like the upper level ones are super self-selecting. So they love talking about writing. They love talking about books. I have, I, you know, the, uh, the other side of this question that people ask me sometimes is, is it possible to teach writing? Like, can you teach someone to be a good writer? Um, I think for me, the first step, which I have a little more control over is teaching students to be good readers and, you know, encouraging reading in them as much as possible. I have a lot of first year intro students who come and they want to write stories. Um, and I'm like, how many short stories have you read in your life? And they're like, uh, like two, you know, <laughs> like, well, you have to read about 500 more um, and then come and talk to me. But I do think it's possible to teach people to be better writers than they are. There is such a thing as innate talent. Um, you know, sometimes I'll get a student where I'm just like, good grief, kid. What have you been 
where where do you come from? And they're like, I don't know, New Jersey, you know. Um, they're just like amazing writers and you can tell it just comes from a completely natural place. Then I have other students who show up and I am lucky because I get to see them for four years growing as writers. Like it is nothing is more fun to me than when I've had a student in my intro class and then in their senior year, like reading the work that they've developed. And I have definitely seen students become much better writers, some really good writers via a lot of reading and a lot of hard work and actually trying to use the techniques that we talk about in class. Like you can learn how to write a good image. That's not innate. You know, to some people it is, but other people really have to work on their imagery <laughs> and they can, you really can. So I, I do think that you can learn how to write, but you have to actually do your homework kids, you know. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Emma Turge, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Emma's brand new novel, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. And right now we are talking to Emma about the writer's life. Uh, she is an assistant professor at McAllister. And I also am dying to ask you, uh, when people come to you and say, should I apply for an MFA? What do you say? It totally depends on the circumstances of the students. Um, I have a lot of international students and an MFA is a great way to extend your visa for a few years and write and make writing friends. So for international students who want to stay in the country, honestly, I often say like, yes, an MFA is a great choice for you if you don't want to go to a different kind of graduate school. Um, and that is just a purely practical answer. And then the other question is, I mean, I, ne I t always tell them, don't ever pay for your MFA. And I will just repeat this publicly. Never pay for an MFA. It even rhymes. You can remember it that way. Um, unless you are independently wealthy or your parents don't mind paying for a degree that, you know, is it's still a luxury degree in a lot of ways. Some programs will treat it a little bit more professionally and teach you about resources and opportunities and how to be a work working writer in the world. But a lot of it, a lot of programs treat it like an arts degree, which is, you know, practical workshopping, um, like a studio degree. So you're writing a ton, you're in the workshop. Um, and that is still, to, in, to my mind, it's a luxury degree. However, it is also a terminal degree, meaning I do not have a PhD, but with my MFA, I can teach at the college level. So if you want to be a creative writing professor, by all means, get your MFA. <laughs> However, the terminal degree also comes with caveats where it's like, you know, MFA plus a substantial record of publication is sort of the equivalent of a PhD for academic hirers. But if you just want to take yourself seriously as a writer and meet a bunch of other writers and live and breathe writing and books and totally immerse yourself, see if it's for you, I highly recommend an MFA. I had a blast in my MFA. I loved the people that I studied with. I loved my cohort. I think it helped that I was in a beautiful place. I was in Missoula, Montana. So I was also just hiking resplendent mountains every morning. But it's not for everybody. It's, it's a little bit intense, you know, some programs more intense than others. So I, yeah, it's a totally variable answer. And if you don't pay for it, who's going to pay for it? Because there, there are tuition bills. Well, many, many MFA programs are free. Some MFA programs have full scholarships where you get a complete tuition remittance, and oftentimes you also get a fellowship. So, for example, like a famous one is the University of Austin. Um, 
Texas, the Mishner program, is famously well-funded. If you go there, I think you don't even teach, and they just give you something like $25,000 to attend. So not only is it free, but it's fully funded. My program was free and funded, but in order to get paid by them, I had to teach throughout my graduate career. So I taught um, creative writing classes as I was a graduate student, which I liked because I knew that I wanted to be a professor. And so it gave me teaching experience while I was still in graduate school. Uh, but many programs are fully funded. And some programs are just like not completely funded, but they're not as expensive as some that I might name in New York City that cost literally $100,000. To me, that is unthinkable. <laughs> Emma, what advice do you have for new writers or people who are just trying to get published for the first time? So advice about writing is very different than advice about publishing, as you probably know. Uh, advice to new writers, I would say if you're very new, try to write about things that you are still curious about rather than trying to write things that you think that you have the answer to. I think exploratory writing is almost always more interesting than didactic writing, you know, writing that thinks that it has the answer and is attempting to impart that answer to their reader, especially if you are a new writer. Um, didacticism is a tool that can be wielded in seasoned hands, I think, uh, better than in uh, new hands. Um, so just making lists of questions about things, even if what you want to write about is, you know, pirates. How many questions do you have about pirates? You will find a story if you write 15 questions about pirates. I guarantee it. Um, so that would be my number one piece of advice. For publishing, my number one piece of advice is uh, be nice to everyone. <laughs> and unless they really deserve your ire, just try to be nice to everyone. Um, even people that you think are beneath you on the ladder of writing. You never know if the person that you were rude to at that conference is going to be the next bestseller and they're gonna remember how rude you were to them. Um, so just be a decent person to everybody and remember that publishing is both a, a gate-kept world and also a real community. So everyone in it is a person and they know people. Um, so just be nice. Don't be rude. <laughs> I feel like that's good life advice. Just be nice to people. Just be nice. Yeah, just be nice to people. My, um, my family motto growing up, courtesy of my father, was safety, politeness, and critical thinking. And I think that that has served me very well in life. And I would repeat it now. Let's hear it again. Safety, politeness, and critical thinking. I really love that. So is there a sequel to Ink Blood, Sister Scribe? Because you left us on a cliffhanger. Um, no, there is no sequel <laughs> at the moment. I have no plans. Let's put it that way. I did leave it a little bit open. Uh, you know, I was hoping for some fan fiction maybe, but that hasn't happened yet. Yes, it is open. I may return to it at some point. Uh, my next book will almost certainly not have anything to do with this book, however. Thank you so much, Emma Turge. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to Check This Out. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. My guest today was Emma Turge. We were talking about her new book, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. I'm here to bring you emerging and diverse authors, books and ideas I think you should be reading and talking about. If you love these books as much as I do, and I know you will, go to your library and check them out or go to your local bookstore and buy a copy. This show is brought to you through a partnership between the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire and NHPR. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's program director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. If you miss an episode or want to hear more, you can go to nhpr.org or thehow.org and download every episode as a podcast.